Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Vaccines to help guard against COVID-19 are making big headlines. And with record numbers of people testing positive for the coronavirus, many people are eager for a vaccine to help us start to get back to normal. With any new vaccine, of course, there are lots of questions. How well does it work? What are the risks? Who will get it first and when? We're talking about that today with infectious disease expert, Dr. Michael Sag. He's Associate Dean of Global Health and the Director of the Center for AIDS Research at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And he's been a guest on Health Now before. The last time we spoke, we talked about his own experience battling COVID-19. Dr. Sag, thanks for joining us again. Good to be back with you. And before we start talking about COVID vaccines, uh, how are you feeling these days? Pretty well, physically. I think the emotional toil that we're all going through with this epidemic is starting to wear, not just on me, but on all of us, but uh, hanging in there. Well, that's good to hear. Um, As good as can be expected, I suppose. Um, Right. Well, to start, we should acknowledge that vaccines usually take years to make. So the fact that there are some that are almost available less than a year after the COVID pandemic began is pretty remarkable. Uh, How was this able to come together so quickly? Well, it was a lot of experience over the last four decades of vaccine development that have all created this, this foundation uh, upon which the COVID vaccine was uh, initially proposed, conceived, and implemented. Uh, I think we're all just kind of blown away by the speed and the effectiveness of these vaccines. To, to put this into context, um, Normally, when the concept of a vaccine is is conceived, there is a lot of uh, trial and error. There's a lot of uh, animal models that are uh, evaluated. And it takes years, not just a few years, sometimes 8, 10, 12 years to get to the point where we are today with the COVID vaccine. And in many cases, for example, like HIV, we've been working on for 35 years right. to find a vaccine, and we still haven't been successful. That's really amazing. Every time I think about that, I'm, I'm very much blown away. Um, and it's not just one company. There are three companies right now, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, who have released early data from you know, large phase three clinical trials. And each of them showed their vaccines are from 90% to 95% effective which sounds very impressive, Um, but can you help us understand exactly what that means? Sure. So the most effective vaccine we have is probably the measles vaccine. It's 98, close to 100% effective. And it's rare that we see cases of measles anymore in the world. And when we do, it's in populations that have, for whatever reason, refused to be vaccinated. So that's the, that's the platinum standard. Most vaccines, let's think like influenza, for example, is only 50% effective at best. And so what that means is that it will protect 
about half the people who get the vaccine for an additional, let's say 20, 30, 40%, if they do get infection and get symptoms, it's usually attenuated or not quite as severe as they might've had uh, without a vaccine. So when you, we talk about 90 to 95% effective, what we're really saying is a striking amount of protection for anyone who gets the vaccine. Now, there's several unknowns, but what we do know is that when you do the study well, like it was done here, that the people who got the vaccine, uh, only uh, five out of 100 actually became infected. So we end up with um, uh, a striking effect of the, of the vaccine. The other thing that is sort of in the footnotes is that among those few people in the vaccine group who became infected, their disease course was much milder than those who got the placebo. So there were very, uh, there was like one out of the, out of all the studies, only one really severe case of COVID among vaccine recipients where up to 20% of people who got infected in the placebo group had uh, moderate to severe infection. So it's not just protective, it's protective also just like influenza against uh, more severe disease. Right. Even if you get infected for those people, it sounded like it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. That's very impressive. What do we know about the safety of these immunizations? And are there specific concerns for different age groups or maybe for people who have underlying health conditions? What we do know is that in the short term, meaning two to three months uh, after getting a the full course of vaccination, there are very few meaningful side effects. Uh, local injection site reactions are always the most common whenever you have an injectable vaccine. And that was seen here. And those uh, are things like pain where you got the shot and pain, redness, redness warmth. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like a little irritation uh, and muscle discomfort. But uh, sometimes some people get some low-grade fever and body aches, but those are um, tolerable. Uh, so, so far, safety appears to be quite good. What's unknown are, is whether there's any long-term safety issues. And of course, we won't know that until enough time has passed among those individuals who got vaccinated. It's kind of hard to imagine what type of long-term safety issue might turn up. Um, and all we could do is sit here and speculate what that could be. But uh, for the most part, with other vaccines, if we're gonna see a problem, uh, it's gonna be in the first month or so after the vaccine is given. For example, one of the more dreaded complications of a vaccine is neurologic complications. And we've, we've had rare instances with other vaccines of something called Guillain-Barre, which means a uh, neuromuscular problem where uh, there's uh, uh, several weeks worth of, of loss of function of muscles. Uh, and the person can actually end up in an intensive care unit. Most people survive that, but of course it's, it's a very severe complication. Uh, there have not been cases of Guillain-Barre yet in any of the COVID vaccine recipients. And we're talking uh, well over 
120 to 150,000 people in all the studies combined that have had it. There was the one case in the AstraZeneca uh, program who had what's called a transverse myelitis, which is also a known complication, rare among vaccines. But uh, that is, again, usually a transient thing. It's quite scary when somebody gets it because they lose uh, the function of their legs um, mm. and, and, and for a time uh, period uh, from the spinal cord being uh, damaged from an immunologic reaction. But um, that's the only case that I'm aware of where that, that type of serious adverse event happened out of hundreds of thousands of, of vaccine recipients so far. So that's why people say the safety profile is pretty good. Okay. How long will, um, you know, if you're in a, a trial like this, how long will the scientists typically monitor people to watch for those kinds of side effects? Is it months or is it, you know, years or more? I know for sure that all of these studies have, uh, out, have follow-up for at least out to a year. I suspect that the FDA, when they review the data, are going to require that the companies follow folks out for multiple years. And the reason for that isn't just safety. The other thing we'll be watching for is to see when the protective immunity might wane, might, when it might go away, and the need for a second injection. Uh, the, the safety of a second round of vaccination is, is a whole new ball game. So we have to, again, study and follow what happens when somebody gets their second round of vaccines, say a year from now, if the immunity looks like it's starting to wane. The other thing we'll be looking for over the course of the next year as we follow people is to see uh, what are the right correlates of protection, meaning when we draw blood and evaluate it for the immune system response to the vaccine, we're looking at things like antibody, and we're looking at how well the cells are reacting to the vaccine itself. And we know from natural infection that antibody levels start to decline about four months after initial infection. And in some people are gone uh, even by that time, but certainly out to eight to 10 months. The question is, are the antibodies really the things that protect? Is that the correlate of immunity that we should be following to know when somebody might be at risk again after a vaccine has been effective? Is it the cell immunity, which is a different arm of the immune system, but also critical in fighting infections? Is that the primary component that we would be wanting to watch? And those are the things that will be sorted out in the next eight to 12 months. Can you tell us a little bit about the vaccine testing and approval process and how it's been different for these COVID vaccines? Some of the companies have requested emergency use authorizations from the FDA, which is obviously not what usually happens when for a standard vaccine. Um, so give us a little bit of insight as to how this whole process has been different. Well, let's put the context out first. We're in an emergency situation. This is a five alarm fire. The pandemic is raging through the country right now. In the next six weeks, we're now at the first part of December, the next six weeks, we're gonna see the worst of this epidemic. This is when the backside of the hurricane is hitting. So emergency, gotta do things right now. 
We can't wait around. So that's the context. And fortunately, the government has uh, reacted extremely well. Uh, they have invested money, a lot of money, into helping these companies speed their development. Normally, when a company is developing a vaccine, they're calculating the likelihood of this vaccine being successful, the population that it might, uh, might be purchasing the vaccine over time, and they're doing business decisions along with their science so that they don't want to get in a situation where they put a lot of money into something that either may fail or even if it works, isn't used that much and they can't make money on the effort. The government started investing money in the development process to help the companies absorb, uh, uh, or let's say eliminate uh, a lot of the risk that they normally would encounter. So that's the first thing that was done to speed up. The second thing was that they also, the government invested in building factories to make vaccines months ago, hmm. which would never happen in normal business of a pharmaceutical company, never, because they're not going to build a factory for something that they don't know if it's even going to work. Right. But, but the government figured out that that would be another year delay if, let's say, we were where we are right now, and then we say, oh, well, now we've got to make enough product to vaccinate millions of people. That would take another year just to develop it. So that part was all done in parallel. As the studies were being done, the manufacturing processes were, were being established at the same time. That's never happened before. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is the regulatory aspect where the government has put as the highest priority, the approval, the evaluation and potential approval for early use authorization uh, for these products, which is gonna happen in the next two weeks for both products. And we should have approvals assuming that there aren't data that we're, we're not aware of um, that would hold it up. Uh, so that means the vaccines can start to be distributed by the third week of December. Wow, uh, that's a lot of unprecedented action that's been taken. But to your point, I mean, this is, a, this is a, an emergency situation that we're in. Um, and you mentioned uh, distribution of the vaccines. Public health experts are making plans as we speak to distribute these vaccines. Um, what do we know about when they might be available for people to get and who would get them first? I know there's some unanswered questions um, there, but you know, at this point, maybe there's some guesses we could make. Those discussions are going on right now. So as you say, uh, there are several things that are still being worked out. But the, in general, what's happening is that the distribution is being established, the systems for getting the vaccines, once they're produced, into uh, transportation systems that get them to sites. The sites have to be identified. They're going to be typically be the state health departments are going to be responsible for the distribution in their state. Um, and then local health facilities, for the most part, ultimately pharmacies, I'm sure, will be brought into this. But right now, it's going mostly to health facilities. Major hospitals um, throughout states are going to be in receipt or helping to coordinate this. And then there's got to be a prioritization scheme. Uh, who gets the vaccine first, second, third, in terms of populations of, of folks? So the 
top priority is going to healthcare workers, which is not just nurses and physicians and other uh, providers, but also the staff who work at the hospitals, uh, maintenance, housekeeping, dietary folks who are going to be exposed, cleaning rooms or bringing food. Uh, they're going to be the top priority, as well as early responders, uh, EMS type folks, uh, and nursing home staff uh, and, and residents of nursing homes are going to be prioritized in the first wave or two. Then it'll start going to people based on their perceived risk profile, older individuals, people with underlying health conditions, those who have more trouble uh, mounting uh, an effective uh, response to the virus. And those are the folks who are ending up more and more in our hospitals and ICUs. So that'll be the second wave and then it'll go from there. So we're looking at um, a time period of say the next three to six months as this rolls out. And uh, we'll, we'll learn as we go in terms of the details, but all, a lot of that is being decided right now. Right. And, you know, some people may have heard about some of the challenges of distributing these vaccines, you know, since some of them need super cold temperatures to be stored, um, things like that. Are those proving to be uh, major stumbling blocks at this point or have, have public health officials kind of figured that stuff out? Well, the one vaccine is the Pfizer vaccine is the one that requires um, extremely cold temperatures maintained throughout. And they knew that that would be an issue as the vaccine was being uh, developed and studied. So in the first case, they for the studies, they had set up distribution uh, procedures for uh, getting the cold chain, as it's called, maintained from the time the vaccine product leaves the factory uh, until it gets to the point of care where the injection is given. So all of that has already been established. There are containers that have electronic monitoring devices to maintain, to document that the temperature has remained uh, at the desired level throughout the entire transportation process. So like real-time monitoring of the temperature where the vaccines are being uh, stored as they're shipped. And so all that has been set up. So I think that'll, I'm not as concerned about that um, because it's been thought through, but it still is an extra barrier. So if Pfizer was the only vaccine, we may start seeing from the stress of having the distribution to so many people, maybe that would take its toll. But in this case, we have now at least two and we probably have another two vaccines that could be available to us uh, by January, February, and, and several more that are on the, in the pipeline so that the, the whole load of, of the requirement for vaccinating so many people, at least in the United States, but worldwide, can be distributed among different products. And that, that makes me uh, a lot more comfortable with dealing with the cold chain, especially for the Pfizer vaccine. Right. I'm glad you mentioned that there are, there are still other vaccines in the works besides these um, main ones that we've talked about. If those go well, like how does that work? Will we have several to choose from? Like, I'm not sure. I don't know if you could go to your health department and say, I want the Moderna vaccine or I want the Pfizer. Like it probably doesn't work like that. What, is, how do, what does yeah. that mean for people? 
I kind of doubt it's going to be a menu like at a restaurant. You know, I right. like this one, that one. <laughs> I think it's going to just be what the assignment is, at least initially, to the state. One thing we have to track, however, is which vaccine someone was uh, assigned to, because a lot of the vaccines required two injections, one uh, on the first day and then 21 to 28 days later, the second one. So what you don't want is a situation where somebody got the Pfizer vaccine on day one and they're bringing the Moderna vaccine on day 28. We have no idea how those would work. So you have to get the same product for the two injections. What all, what's exciting to me is that uh, there's another product that Johnson Johnson's developing that may be able to get by with just one injection, and then you're one and done, at least for that first vaccination. And that would simplify things a lot. And I think that would ultimately win the day as the uh, prime vaccine candidate because it won't require the follow-up uh, visit. Because obviously that second injection is yet another barrier. You, you don't want somebody just getting one injection and failing to get that critical second injection that would fully protect them. Right. Is it likely that a vaccine like this would be something like, you know, the flu vaccine where you, you have to get it every year, you know, um, in perpetuity? Or would it be more like, you know, you could just kind of get it once in your life and maybe that would be it, or maybe somewhere in between? Uh, don't know yet, but I would guess, based on what we know about this virus and other coronaviruses, that it would probably be at least annually. Uh, now, what's changing, hopefully, is that as more and more people get vaccinated, the actual number of infections starts to drop. And, and if it gets to this point of what I would call critical mass, where there's enough people protected against infection, then the transmission itself becomes curtailed because there's not enough susceptible people to infection in the population to continue the epidemic onward. That term where you get that critical mass, that's where that term herd immunity comes from. We've heard it, in my view, inappropriately used when we describe people actually getting infected and getting sick. We don't want to have a herd immunity from so many people suffering so much. But from a vaccination standpoint, getting to herd immunity is one of the primary objectives from an epidemiology and public health perspective. So let's say if we're really fortunate and these vaccines continue to move forward, they continue with their safety and their effectiveness as is, by this time next year, in 2021, late, uh, late in the year, we hopefully will have enough people protected that the epidemic starts to burn out. And now to get back to your question, would we require this annually for the next several years to keep the infection burned out is a question we'll have to answer when the time comes. I see. And once the vaccines are out, how does that change how we all behave? You know, people are, um, well, at least some people are sort of, you know, getting used to wearing masks in public, keeping their distance from others. Would we, will there be a point when we, you know, are able to, to stop doing those things? Or, you know, once the vaccine is, is out and available, I assume that doesn't mean that everybody can stop those other safety measures. That's a critical question. Probably the most important topic for this entire discussion. 
you started off by asking me, how am I doing? And I said, physically okay, but I'm kind of worn out. We're all worn out. We're mm. tired of this. We want it to go away. We, we're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of not being with friends. And, and it's wearing on all of us. And that's, that fatigue, unfortunately, is what's driving the spike of cases that we're seeing right now that I'm, as I said earlier, I'm very concerned is going to continue. And to me, that is a huge tragedy because by this time next year, we'll be out of this dark tunnel and back into light. And getting there, that's next nine to 10 months, if we can just hold on and keep doing those things, double down, triple down on all those things we know that work, the wearing the mask, keeping distance, uh, avoiding large crowds, especially if people aren't wearing masks in those, in those areas, washing our hands frequently. We've got to really hold on to that as our cornerstone. And the best way I can suggest that people think about this is imagine our situation. If we didn't have a vaccine on the horizon, in reality, if we didn't know the cavalry was coming, they are coming, they're going to rescue us, but it's going to take another 10 months. So how tragic is it for any one of us or our family members to get sick and God forbid die from this because we as a collective group are not doing the things that we need to do to keep infections at bay. Now that we know we have relief on the way, it's time to really dig in and do those things and get this under control while we give the vaccines time to work. As someone who has recovered from COVID, what would you want people to know who are hesitant about getting vaccines in general, or even just wary of getting this particular vaccine? Well, I can certainly understand um, hesitation and just running out and embracing this. It's very new. Uh, we have data for sure, uh, but we don't have years and years of data with this vaccine like we do with flu. But on the other hand, we do have a lot of information from other vaccines that have been used as our platform to build this one. And so we have some risk for sure in taking something that, that only has three to four months of benefit. But on the flip side, we know for sure that this virus is evil and it's in our midst and it's not a hypothetical that people get it and get sick and go in the hospital. Um, so we're weighing out two relative risks here. And to me, the risk of the vaccine pales in comparison to the risk of getting the infection. Having had it, as you mentioned, I can tell you that it is a horrible experience, not only because of the illness day to day, but the psychological experience of not knowing moment to moment if or when deterioration could happen and you end up in a hospital on a ventilator. Nobody wants that. And that fear of that eventuality is something I wouldn't wish on anyone. To go back to your earlier question about what to do between now and next year, here's another great analogy, I think, is to imagine that all of us are in a combat troop together. And we've just been deployed into a war zone. 
And we know that our tour of duty is going to last a year. And our objective, besides getting the enemy under control, is surviving so that we can go home when our tour of duty is over, safe and sound and not injured. That's really what we're up against right now. We're on a tour of duty together. We're, we're a band of brothers and sisters fighting in the trenches against a virus. And our goal is to put the virus in its place, get it under control, and then get home safely with no injury and no casualties. That's what we're all about right now. And if you talk to anybody who's been in the military in combat, they will tell you that they're not just fighting for their country, they're also fighting for their brothers and sisters in the trench next to them. That's how we have to think about this. We have to be bands of brothers and sisters getting through this, and the vaccine is our way, is our ticket home. My final question for you about vaccines specifically, uh, do you think the way these vaccines were created, which is, you know, at lightning speed, basically, might affect how other immunizations are created in the future? Or is this really a truly unique circumstance? Oh, there's no question it's going to revolutionize vaccines. Uh, to get a little bit into detail, on January 10th or so of 2020, the Chinese government released the structure, the, the genetic structure of the virus to the world. And I know the story mostly of what Tony Fauci and his team at the National Vaccine Research Center did is the next day they started analyzing, trying to figure out which is the best candidate region of the virus to target a vaccine. They identified the spike protein, the outer protein of the virus, because that's where it interacts with not just the receptor in the, in the patient, but it's also what the immune system sees as a target. And so they made a pretty good educated guess that that spike protein was the area. And they found that fragment within the genetic code of the virus and put it, shuttled it into uh, an mRNA vaccine vector, meaning they, they were able to create um, and multiply in large quantities um, that small fragment from the virus, just that fragment, not the whole virus, obviously. And they could, package it so that it could be used in a vaccine. That was all done, at least the identification and the development of, of the candidate vaccine in two days. Wow. Two days. By January 12th, they had what ultimately has turned into the Moderna vaccine. That's incredible. It's, it is incredible. So when you're dealing with mRNA, you can create that. You can generate that in a matter of a couple of hours or a day and have, have a fragment that you could then use down the road as a potential vaccine if you know the right structure, the right part of uh, the virus or maybe even a tumor cell, whatever it might be, that you can target with a vaccine to stimulate the immune system to fight against that if it ever encounters that type of uh, antigen, that type of protein in the future. So yes, it's going to revolutionize vaccine development, no question. That's fascinating. Um, well, Dr. Michael Sag, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We wish you all the best in uh, your work in the coming months and hope you continue to feel well. Thanks. It's a pleasure being with you.
All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining us. One more thing before we go, though. Please make sure you've subscribed to our show so you don't miss any of our great episodes. And just a reminder that you can keep up with WebMD's coverage on coronavirus and all things health and wellness on our social channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hope you'll join us next time. 